Hello, welcome to the Theology Podcast. It's great to have you with us for another show. We've got a special show today. We've got a couple of guests, and we're going to let them introduce themselves in a moment. But uh, just to let you know who the regular guys are, uh, I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm a pastor. I serve a church in the Pacific Northwest. Written some books. Most recent book is in the House of Tom Bombadil, and I've taught philosophy even. But enough about me. How about you, Glenn? I'm Glenn Sunshine. I'm a retired history professor from Central Connecticut State University, specializing in the Reformation. These days, I'm a ministry associate at Reflections Ministries and a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. Okay, Tom, you. Tom Price. I'm a teacher. I teach systematic theology, uh, Christian ethics, and philosophy at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. Okay, and so we have a couple of guests with us, and I'm just going to let the guys introduce themselves, but so that they know the order. Let's go with you, Brad, first. And just tell folks who you are and your, your institutional affiliations and so forth, and then Stephen, the same. Yep, I'm Brad Littlejohn. I'm the founder and president of the Davenant Institute, uh, which uh, has a Davenant Press that published uh, this volume in question. And I'm also a fellow in the Evangelicals and Civic Life Program at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. Great. Stephen? I'm Stephen Wedgworth. I am the rector, which just means head pastor at Christ Church Anglican in South Bend, Indiana. Uh, I'm also a founding board member of the Davenant Institute and write on church history and Reformation theology. Well, Stephen, your environment there looks very Anglican. I uh, I was baptized Episcopalian, so I know what the inside of uh, Anglican churches is like. And it's a uh, you got some great woodwork uh, and some other things around you there, and some books. Yeah, yeah. This church was uh, founded by Methodists, but they were copying John Wesley's church, which would have been Anglican. That's true. That's true. So yeah. we're, we're here to talk about uh, a publication that uh, you guys are uh, behind that's uh, been produced by the Davenant Institute. Tell us a little bit about it. We've, we've had a chance to peruse it, and uh, we're really eager to talk about it, but we want you guys to make sure that you get the chance to say what you want to say about it. Yeah, so the book is called Protestant Social Teaching. And the title was very much intentional to give you what the main project was all about. We wanted you to think about Catholic social teaching, which has become very popular over the years, very powerful way of explaining uh, a coherent ethical and doctrinal vision of the world. But we wanted to show that Protestants have such a thing as well, and that we're not playing uh, catch-up, we're not copycatting them, that it actually is something that's in our own tradition. And so this book tries to be uh, equal parts history and current events, talking about what the Protestant Reformers, starting at the time of the Reformation and moving up to the modern era, have had to say about moral issues. And so there are chapters on politics, there's chapters on marriage, chapters on war, chapters on uh, labor unions and economics, uh, chapters on dying, and we tried to give a whole scope of a kind of moral vision for the Christian, drawing from the Protestant Reformation. Yeah, that's great stuff. One of the things, too, that folks ought to know is that the different chapters uh, are written by different uh, scholars, different uh, authorities in various uh, aspects of the, you know, or I should say, in each of the areas that that uh, are being addressed, and that and that's great. Anything you wanted to say about it, Brad? Yeah, you know, I just emphasize, um, you know, Davenant Institute's um, mission is really kind of translating the riches of uh, our Reformation past to the needs of the church today. And that translation, you know, I, I tell people there's kind of three aspects of that translation. One is the translating across the time barrier from the past to the present, uh, another is translating across the kind of things to be believed to things to be done barrier. Here's, you know, the, from here's what Protestants have believed. Okay. What does it mean to live well in light of this? And the third is just kind of translating kind of somewhat down the, the spectrum from academic to popular. We don't try to get, you know, we don't try to go all the way down that, that spectrum. We're not, uh, this isn't going to be a, you know, Rob Bell bestseller, but we are trying to kind of, to, um, we're, we're okay with that. <laughs> exactly. 
<laughs> this is the, the ideal audience for this is the you know the educated layperson, pastor, elder, um, who really wants to take these ideas and then and then hopefully they can then be equipped to translate them a couple notches further down to kind of you know take the ideas in this book and then in their own ministries how to apply those to the um, the Christians that they're ministering to. So we hope that the um, we we really worked hard to find authors who were going to work hard to uh, present these, you know, big, big topics um, with, you know, hundreds of years of reflection behind them, present them in, um, you know, manageable chapters. You know, I think the, the average chapter is like, like 20 pages long uh, and, and at a level that can be broadly engaged with. So we're, uh, you know, we're, we're very excited about, uh, uh, you know, we, we think we, we think we've succeeded in that and uh, we're, it's already, on track to be our best-selling book ever at Davenant Institute. So, Oh, nice. That's great to hear. So I guess the thing that I, I'd like to get into initially, uh, uh, just as we think about the, the, the theme, Protestant social teaching, uh, is why is it that this is something uh, that's news? <laughs> in other words, what, what happened in Protestantism that caused it, at least at a popular level, to lose touch with its uh, sort of its past and its... Uh, you know its roots uh, in terms of nourishment when it came to comes to these these uh, particular things. Everybody who's you know literate uh, has heard of you know Catholic social teaching, but uh, Protestant social teaching might strike some people as, as you noted, Stephen, uh, copycatting. <laughs> yeah, well, I think that for both Catholics and Protestants, the idea of having a, a name brand, you know, such and such social teaching. It's actually new for both of them, and if you read any Catholic social teaching book, they always tell you, oh, this started with uh, Rerum Novarum, which is a 19th century papal encyclical. And so, even though, yeah, they're, they're in the 19th century, uh, that's still kind of modern, right? <laughs> that's not, not from the 1500s or the 400s. <laughs> and so, the idea of having a name brand is new, because prior to that, you could just assume that social teaching would be a Christian social teaching. You know, we, back in the days of Christendom, there was no need to separate those two. Now, why do Protestants take longer? Well, I think because America was still largely a Protestant country. And so you didn't feel the need to say, oh, by the way, we're going to add a Protestant spin on this. The idea was, well, you know, the, the traditional American way of looking at these things would be Protestant. So Catholics have to jump out and wave the flag and say, no, 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 we're doing something different. We're being Catholic about it because the background was Protestant. But now we don't have that luxury anymore. You know, the 20th century wrecking ball comes through. Uh, probably the first big knockdown is World War II, mass delusion and death, and then the 60s and 70s with the counterculture. And now we're all crazy. <laughs> Nobody knows what they used to know. Um, the basics uh, are very transgressive. And so we're trying to bring back what would have been normal, but we have to show that to a world that is extremely abnormal. If I could just right, add right. one dimension to that, I, I think part of it is also the result of the way the fundamentalist modernist controversy played out, right? And that you had this liberalism creeping into the major institutions of Protestant higher education in the early 20th century. Uh, you know, the most famous battle line is, is of course, J. Gresham Machen at, at Princeton Seminary, but it was happening in, in other denominations and, um, and other institutions. And the, you know, as the name fundamentalist suggests, there was an emphasis on kind of getting back to the fundamentals um, in a sort of, you know, we're, we're just jumping overboard, cramming into the life rafts, escaping these rapidly liberalizing denominations, and we're just going to kind of cling to uh, the core basics that we can bring with us. And in many cases, that was that was focused on a series of doctrinal affirmations about the historicity of the Christian faith. And the 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 moral implications of those doctrinal commitments were not given as much emphasis at the time. Uh, and so there was just a, a kind of 
key aspects of the tradition were sort of left behind on the sinking mainline ship, I think. And evangelicals in the later part of the 20th century uh, were kind of moving, you know, they maybe decided Jesus wasn't going to come back tomorrow and they needed to move back into the public square, but they did so with a greatly impoverished set of uh, ethical resources. They'd kind of left the natural law tradition behind. They had kind of forgotten the Reformation understanding of what the task of civil government is and had kind of defaulted to an American libertarianism. And so they just kind of had these scattered moral commitments. They made maybe a rediscover, you know, that, that actually had waver on the pro-life issue, but they kind of rediscovered the importance of that and, and the importance of fighting euthanasia and, and, and addressing issues in, um, of sexual orthodoxy and maybe, maybe standing up for just war against pacifism, although you had a lot of, I think, pacifism making inroads in evangelical ranks, but it tended to be kind of scattered and ad hoc. Um, and so the kind of, the kind of coherent picture within which those things had fit uh, really had to, had to be rebuilt. And that's what we're trying to do in this book. Yeah. I actually think you have to push it back a little bit further than the fundamentalist modernist controversy. 19th century sees the rise of social gospel which produces a backlash in, in theologically conservative churches where they emphasize uh, evangelism over social action, whereas historically the two of them had always been united. And then that is further accelerated with the fundamentalist modernist controversy. But you can trace this back into the 19th century um, in Europe. The, the, the battles are already starting to be fought. Yeah. And of course, I mean, Part of how it plays out in the U.S. is because of the slavery issue, you have um, the strong emphasis on the spirituality of the church doctrine, where it's basically we want to avoid having the church address this issue at all in the South. And so we're going to just kind of leave moral and social issues outside the church door. Uh, and of course, that, you know, the South is kind of become is the most theologically conservative. So the most theologically conservative churches are the ones that have the longest tradition of ignoring social issues for both for bad reasons and good reasons. So, which is kind of ironic in a sense, because, uh, this is not necessarily a liberal conservative thing. It's just a, just a part of the broad Christian tradition that we actually talk about. Well, everything, <laughs> you know, and not just, uh, you know, getting people to heaven, you know, sort of a narrow focus, uh, and I guess that's something I, I was thinking about when I thought of, when I was looking at the book, uh, you know, I was wondering whether there were some things that were particularly, I guess, uh, uh, sort of, uh, unique to the American situation that would prevent people from kind of exploring that idea. You know, for example, um, the idea that, you know, the most important thing is, uh, you know, the individual and the, and the choices of the individual and kind of a, a lack of uh, appreciation for how Christian, the Christian faith uh, is public truth and informs public life. Um, and that's just kind of something that doesn't occur to many people. Um, I remember, you know, reading Leslie Newbegin years ago and his, I think the title of one of his books is something like that public truth or at least one of the themes that he explored was Christianity as public truth. And at the time I was, you know, just uh, in my early twenties and engaged in my theological education, that, that actually was news to me. <laughs> and I wonder how, how many people, you know, in our churches would find that news today because of the privatization of the faith in the United States. Any thoughts on that? I think another part is the, um, the, Reformation picture is multinational um, in its different now called denominations. So in our book, we have uh, Lutheran contributions, we have uh, Anglican, we have Reformed, Presbyterian, we have some Baptists, and um, that would have been the range, maybe not too many Baptists back then, sorry guys, <laughs> but the other groups, uh, that would have been the range in the 16th, 17th century. And all of those groups assumed um, that they could represent their nation, right? That that, that was the, the body of Christians in England or the body of Christians in Scotland. When you come to America, you, you lose the Lutherans. They really don't participate until very, very recently. Um, and the, the leading denominations that would have been happy to take the statesmanship crown, they tend to go liberal first. 
you know, your Anglicans, your more liberal Presbyterians and the various Congregationalists, they all go liberal first. And so that leaves any, any conservative Christian voice that wants to be engaged in social politics, pretty much the Methodists and the Baptists and the Pentecostals. And um, the Baptists and Pentecostals don't typically have a deep church history that they're drawing into. And so I think that that also plays a part of this, right? That the, the Christians most likely to be politically engaged on a conservative level, and therefore interested in representing kind of classic Christianity, are also going to be the denominations that are not as historically conscious. Um, and so that, that's a big part of it as well. Yeah, I do just want to make a small correction, Stephen. I don't think we have a single Baptist among the contributors. So, um, <laughs> what? No, <laughs> hang on, <laughs> Alistair. Alistair would be okay with that too. No. <laughs> I'm, just kidding. I'm just kidding. No Baptists. Wow, I'm I, grew, I grew up Baptist, so I can I can kind of slang a little bit on them. <laughs> I had a little uh, a, a little bit of a comment and then uh, a few questions. Um, one is I did appreciate seeing my doctor father, the late John Webster, show up uh, a few times in there. Uh, he was dear to me. I was one of his Oxford, his last Oxford student. So um, it's precious to see the legacy of his work take shape the way it has um, and as rapidly as it has. Um, and maybe I could uh, kind of throw out there, maybe before my second question is, uh, what what is the significant, because I know a, a few people have connections to him, and of course, his good friend, Oliver O'Donovan, um, what is the connection between their work and the project with Davin and this project? Uh, maybe you both could speak to that, uh, because I do think that their, their work is very important. And uh, sadly, a lot of Americans aren't familiar with it. It tends to be a couple steps up from the from the lay level. Um, and we're working very hard to get it down into the church, but uh, maybe both of you could speak a little bit about the significance of both figures. Yeah, I, I would say um, to those two, I would add um, Richard Muller as uh, maybe kind of course, three yeah. most important theological voices um, of the past generation. O'Donovan, preeminently in the field of ethics, uh, Webster preeminently in dogmatics and Muller preeminently in historical theology. And I think the original intellectual community that Davenant grew out of um, it was made up of folks who were, I think, di yeah, disproportionately influenced by those three figures, either in a number of cases as graduate students uh, of theirs. Uh, in my case, I was an O'Donovan graduate student yeah. and I, uh, a number of my you know, I guess Webster was at Aberdeen when I was at Edinburgh. So, and this, I, I knew a lot of, I knew a lot of his grad students. Um, and, and and yes, the sense that um, they were, these were some real giants of modern theology who were operating on just a totally different level than most of what you get in American theological discourse, um, and, and 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 ethical discourse. And uh, you know, and for some reason. They, you know, they had they had dedicated followings. They had they had a, a steady stream of, of of graduate students coming to them and 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 coming away deeply shaped by their work. Um, and and each kind of had a sort of cult following of, of people who understood how important their impact was. But it wasn't getting out there very much, um, just because of the way in, that the um, the church and the academy have become increasingly separated. Uh, in recent decades, so that was a lot of the impetus for starting Davenant was, uh, I mean, not was to say, why is there so much great stuff happening in modern theology that is having so little impact yeah. on um, on pastors and Christian leaders, uh, and yeah. and yeah, yeah, oh great, yeah, I think those three those three guys. Um, I don't know as much about Webster's personal history, but um, the others. They were also engaged in correcting um, a historical record that had been too dominated by Karl Barth, neo-Orthodoxy, and then certain strands of neo-Calvinism. And so yeah. they were they were trying to to move the focus back to um, the 17th century and uh, maybe even 16th, 17th, 18th century, more of the Reformed scholasticism, or at least show the broader view of the Reformation um, than what had been interpreted in the earlier 20th century. 
I would just add on regarding O'Donovan, um, we're actually a little plug for the next book that we have coming down the pipe after Protestant social teaching. Uh, we actually got the rights to do a new edition of his uh, Begotten or Made, which is excellent. Yeah, we did on on reproductive ethics back in 1984, yeah. which is just, just yeah amazingly prescient. But I still have the old version. That's yeah. But uh, just on a note, uh, uh, Glenn, uh, Glenn, you you sidekicked with Rich Muller. You both were roommates uh, once upon a time, and uh, I studied yeah. under Dave Steinmetz, where. Uh, where Mueller used to come in and uh, do sit in for him when Dave Steinmetz was away. So we kind of have a, a little uh, uh, you know, affinity with these guys. At Edinburgh David, as well? David Steinmetz from, well, it was at Duke uh, when I, yeah, back when I was a, a very young man. I had hair like you guys. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, uh, Richard Mueller, I, th- well, he, I think he did his doctorate under Steinmetz at Duke, if, I was, if okay. I'm correct. Yes, yep. Yes, he did. Yeah, and um, yeah, so so we, you know, I, I was very happy to see kind of what you guys were up to from the start, and kind of follow it, it kind of in the background. It's it's a bit very continuous with the kind of work and emphasis I've had. And I think just to add with John Webster, uh, Stephen, you you kind of mentioned uh, he he was somebody who kind of went through, you know, kind of I think he had an evangelical conversion out of his kind of what he called the watery Methodism years years back and he he, tell, he used to tell me a very funny story when he's initially starting for doctoral programs he he sent uh, uh, a request to cornelius van till and he said the oddest return came back he said he sent the photograph of himself <laughs> john webster never understood why van till sent a photograph of himself he just thought it was funny <laughs> but, but but john kind of went through a kind of i think a big bardian phase but i think what attracted john was the sources that Bart in his 20s really re- re- tr- re- went to, the classic Reformed sources, um, and and then also, of course, the classic Christian tradition. I think that informed um, John a lot. Also, the kind of the theological exegesis that the church was engaged in, not just sort of a kind of historical, grammatical, in a very flat, this-worldly way, but something much fuller, that, that, that the actual doctrinal substance of Scripture is also informing this kind of, you know, this, this reading horizon of the church. And John eventually ends up with a very deep commitment in his latter years towards retrieving the riches of the Thomas tradition for, I think, um, for that kind of Protestant vision that says this is, this is a part of who we are too. We're not afraid of it. And we can show, we can show kind of the gratuitous character of both creation and grace are complementary through, through, you know, in his work, latter work was kind of uh, that return to Thomas, which of course is an, you know, can be very, you know, it's kind of a irritation with some, some reform folk, but for those who really see that as a continuity to a tradition, which I think this is where the Muller and, and, and um, Dave Steinmetz came in that, that we were a part of this living Christian tradition in which the retrieval of the gospel with the reformers was a very rich aspect of continuity, not discontinuity. And I think what you guys do really breeds that out in this this recent work. Um, back back to my question, Tom. Tom uh-huh. Before you before yeah. you get there, just just a couple of quick observations. Steinmetz was a student of Heiko Obermann. Mm. Uh, Obermann was all about the medieval roots of the Reformation. Ah. So this idea of continuity is coming from Obermann to Steinmetz, and I think also to to Muller. Um, the the thing about Mueller that I, I, roommates only at conferences. Uh, mm-hmm. I taught at Calvin College while he was at at the seminary. Um, the 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 thing that Mueller that drove both Mueller and me and a lot of the other people in our circles kind of crazy was when you went to the Calvin Studies Society and all the papers were about Bart. <laughs> um, you know, I, I actually, I actually ran in. I, I had a colleague um, at at Central Connecticut State who was something of an expert on the Puritans, and he asked me what I what I did in my dissertation, and I explained some of it, and he, he said, and I quote, "That couldn't be in Calvin. It's not in Bart." <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, that's, it's that kind of thing that that drove Mueller yeah. absolutely crazy. Yeah, and that really, you know, he worked very, very hard at, at retrieving what the real tradition was, not as filtered yeah. through uh, through Bart in the twentieth century. Yeah. You know, this is this is great stuff. I'd like to dive in a little bit to the book uh, we're talking about, though. Is yep. there anything that you yep. guys would like to focus in on? So, Brad or Stephen, is there a chapter uh, that you want us to kind of think about a little bit with you? Well, I mean, first let me just say, kind of methodologically, jumping off of what um, Thomas said, that uh, you know, when, when you see Protestant social teaching on the cover, you shouldn't think, uh, "Oh, okay, this is supposed to be all kind of distinctly unique." distinctively uniquely protestant it's all going to just start you know 1517 because yeah. of course our vision of what it means to be protestant is to be anchored in yeah. the the small c catholic tradition going right back to the beginning and and also in conversation with the roman catholic tradition as it's um developed since the reformation i mean yeah. much of the best of early modern protestant theology was it, it didn't just go back to the medievals um, you know, it's it's constantly interacting with the re the the best and most recent Roman Catholic work, uh, and re yes. and understanding that it has things to learn from it. So, yeah. this book, in terms of the sources of it, you'll find chapters that are um, in good Protestant fashion, doing a lot of biblical exegesis. You'll find a number of chapters that are doing a lot in terms of expounding uh, the reformers themselves and the, the the way these things played out in the decades after the Reformation. But you'll find chapters that are uh, engaging with church fathers, medieval figures, uh, or or recent Roman Catholic thought, uh, and we kind of we're intentionally eclectic about that because we think that Protestantism is um, is the best form of of theological eclecticism. So, yeah, it's, I, I think um, Stevens, uh, Stephen, your article is on on abortion. Is that correct? If I do my memory, correct me in that. Yes. Yeah. And, and I think that was a great exemplification of that is, is here you have, you know, uh, and it was a comprehensive article in which you're dealing with, you know, biblical roots, Old Testament conversations and debates, um, the complexities of it moving into the fuller view of Scripture, then into the patristic debate, the medieval debate, then up into the Protestant conversation, and then into the wider significance. And I do think that really uh, encapsulates what, as Protestants, I think the, the, the riches of being both, yeah, like you said, Catholic and and Protestant, um, that, that, that's the kind of, that brings out in best relief, in my opinion, what the Protestant figures were up to. And I, I could really hear it in, in articles like that, and of course yours too, uh, Brad, uh, that, that was really, uh, really telling. And, and so there is a rich amount of history, theological engagement, you know, uh, es ed hold on, uh, exegetical, <laughs> exegetical engagement and, and kind of moral reflection going on there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I appreciated that from Tom, uh, the things Tom mentioned as well. And along with that, um, particularly again in, in Stephen's uh, article, the engagement not just with the older history, but with the recent history and sort of contemporary issues as well. Um, we saw that, uh, again, particularly with the contraception piece and things like that. There, There's the bringing the past into the present to help inform the present and understand the changes that have occurred over the last century or so, um, I thought was a, just a very valuable part of the book as well. Yeah, thanks for the compliments on the essay. One of the things that struck me when I was doing the research is that it's, uh, it's currently totally commonplace to encounter the argument that, oh, um, evangelicals were not always pro-life. You know, they, they jumped on board for that later to kind of manipulate people for voting purposes. Um, really, they were, they were all segregationists or something, right? That's, that's what you hear all the time. And when I was looking into it, I was surprised at the fact that there is a kernel of truth to that. Um, the Southern Baptist Convention in 1971, their resolution on abortion was was pro-choice. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, they, they, yeah, they allow for abortion for cases of rape, incest, evidence of fetal deformity, and yeah. the likelihood of 
damage emotional, mental, or physical health to the mother. Yeah. 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 That's as broad as you can get, usually, in a Christian context. Yeah. Yeah. You also find some of the evangelical stalwarts who were very definitely uh, pro-choice early on until they started thinking through some of the implications of it. And then they said, well, wait a minute, maybe we need to go a different direction. Yeah. Stephen, why do you think that is that uh, there was such a loss of moral compass there for that period in mid-century at least? Yeah, so one one place that might be telling is the OPC, Orthodox Presbyterian Church, in um, 1970, they, they did a study on this, and, and they came back divided. You know, that was shocking to think the OPC right, would 60, be divided. Did you say 67, 67 people voted for it? Is that correct? In, in the, the voting you listed in the book, if I remember right. Um. I, I don't know about the voting, but I do remember that the minority report was yeah. authored by Paul Paul Woolley, huh. um, and he was a founding member of Westminster Seminary. He would have been an associate of Matron, so so he's the one writing minority report that is pro-choice, um, and that was really striking because he he's a big big name in OPC history. But what he he argued is really revealing. So um, in his argument, he says that the the majority report, which is against abortion, um, it is too rationalistic. (laughs) And so that means, uh, that means it's, uh, there's not enough proof texting (laughs) that that they're taking a verse and then they're making an argument that's in his mind, speculative. Um, Well, and then he says that's very interesting. Let, well, let me slow you there, because I think this is a place at which I think, at least I, myself as a Protestant, learn very much from the Catholics, and that is the, the, the much richer metaphysical um, dimensions of their history, which I think is classically Christian, is something the, the earlier uh, Protestants would have subscribed to, even though they wrestled with metaphysical changes going on in, in a very uh, transformative climate. Um, but but that is a big deal because proof text doesn't have the capacity to deal with the what what John Webster's called the, the wider ramifications of, that biblical reasoning helps to deal with. In other words, when you start to engage not only in simple oh I've got a text to underwrite this practice, but actually the the reality implications of this biblical material for this in the real world, um, Catholics have been a little bit at, uh, better at these things than we have. And I think these are examples of that. And this is why I think the pro-life movement really started to mimic more the Catholic view once it realized that, wait a minute, these questions are, are worth, um, I mean, the, 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 the interpretive resources they have sometimes are able to engage what we want to more fully, but we don't yet have the vocabulary or the, the kind of resources to do it. Am I off on that, or, or, or do you, you kind of see that as kind of? Yeah, I think that's, that's right on, that um, Woolley was speaking for a very common assumption, which is, you know, show me the chapter and the verse, or back off. You know, you, you, can't, you can't do anything if you don't have that. Yeah. Um, whereas the older, older Protestant tradition was more like the Catholics, and that they were confident in philosophy and yeah. uh, good and necessary consequences, uh, uh, more yeah. of a synchronic picture, putting things together. Yeah, and I think that evangelicals um, have they have understood some of the need for that more holistic reasoning on the abortion issue, but it still remains a bit ad hoc. When you go outside of that issue, you still find I think Protestants tend to reflexively fall back on this kind of biblicism. Uh, and that they they just make their moral stands in terms of things that they feel like they can clearly proof text, uh, which makes it. I mean, I think that's and, and the, you know the problem is that a proof text, um, even a even a very persuasive looking proof text, is very vulnerable to a kind of uh, skeptical hermeneutical dissection where you say, well, you know, you know, what about maybe 
we got to look at look at this other text over here. Let's think about the original historical context. And and this is so you know this is why I think so many evangelicals have proven so weak on the homosexuality issue. Like we seem to have okay, we've got some really solid proof texts there, you know. But then um, if that's all you've got and you don't have a strong theoretical framework within which those proof texts are embedded, um, but, you know, they should just be like the tip of an iceberg, that there's way more to your argument under the surface. And if that's all you've got, then it's really easy for someone to come along and say, well, you know, the Mosaic law is just the Mosaic law. You know, we don't, yeah. we don't, we don't follow most of it. Why, you know, you don't, you don't want to stone homosexuals, do you? Okay. If you don't want to stone them, then why do you even think this still applies at all? Right. You know? Yeah. Well, I, I think what you hit on there is very, very, I mean, something our show hits on a lot. And this is something I, you know, I have learned for, through a lot of Catholic philosophers in particular is that Biblicism is underwritten by voluntarism and nominalism. Let's face it, it is. It, it, it is a, an approach that is detached from any thicker reading of God's nature and, and creation. And because of that, it, 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 it is arbitrarily applied and very limitedly applied. Um, and so this is, I think, why, why Webster's concern was, of course, retrieval, to show the, the undercurrents that are underwriting proper Protestant dogmatics and ethics. Um, and whether one goes the full way with that or not is fine. I understand the later debates and the significance of them. But I'm just saying that they at least understood the magnitude that how you understand reality in its fullest sense, as it's coordinated with God as, you know, the source and end of all things, matters in how you apply every single passage in Scripture. And this is, you know, I think that, that complementing between, you know, theology and metaphysics that I think, I think uh, retrieval Protestantism is, is after in many ways. It, it, is, it is meant to not go down this road that Biblicism ends up going, um, because biblicism ends up cutting short the ethical vision of Christianity because it can't if it doesn't find a proof text, it can't say anything. <laughs> yeah, and, and we have to hear remember that sola scriptura is not the same as biblicism. And that, that's one thing that I think a right. lot of people completely overlook. Um, it, it is sola scriptura. Uh, Obermann does a great job pointing this out in the Harvest of Medieval Theology. Sola Scriptura was always embedded into a broader idea of the regula fide, the, the rule of faith, which guides your interpretation of Scripture. Um, when you detach Scripture from the rule of faith, you're left with me and my Bible. And that move was actually made by 19th century liberals. They wanted mm -hmm. to detach it from the historical understanding of the text so that they could write off miracles and things like that as metaphors or whatever. You know, and unfortunately, the evangelical tendency to prove text uh, really has more of its roots in um, the, the, the sort of extreme examples that we're looking at here have more of its roots in the 19th century liberals than they do in, in the historic Protestant tradition. Yeah. And the other thing to emphasize is that Sola Scriptura was understood uh, to apply in the realm of credenda, things to be believed. You couldn't hold anything as a binding article of Christian belief unless you could back it up from Scripture. Um, it didn't apply in the same way in the realm of agenda, things to be done. They understood that, that in terms of um, the area of the, the kind of the temporal order, um, living out Christian life, there required – it was impossible in the nature of the case that you could have Scripture alone because – uh, the range of, of of circumstances and questions that you're going to encounter is is infinite. So what you need to do is cultivate a Christian wisdom, which is um, built on Scripture, fortified by natural law, and then also uh, specified by by human law. Which is you know that's another piece of the puzzle that I think gets lost in a lot of American evangelicalism. We we lose out the natural law piece and just have the divine law, and we also have kind of lost out an understanding of the appropriate role of human law, which the reformers are very careful to emphasize, right? When, when Luther says, here I stand, I can do no other, uh, and emphasizes freedom of conscience, he doesn't think that that means that, um, that the Christian magistrate can never uh, lay, down, lay down the law for, his, for, for how a Christian community is supposed to be regulated. And so this gets to you know, my chapter, kind of recovering reformational understanding yeah of the magistrate that I think is so timely now where conservatives are 
kind of recovering from their long libertarian slumber and recognizing that the state is always a moral institution. The state is always making moral claims. It's always informed by religious vision. And by refusing to acknowledge that and pretending that it could just be this kind of neutral arbiter of property rights or whatever, we just yeah. created this vacuum into which the left very confidently stepped, right? And so yeah. we need to regain an understanding of um, you know, lawmaking as um, a, a reflection of moral order uh, and, a, and a promotion of a religious vision, which the reformers understood very clearly. And that, you know, that's what I try to recover in my chapter. But what I was going to get to, yeah, that was really where that question I was going to ask was going, was was sort of towards your chapter, where the American context actually plays, uh, 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 you know, t- talking about historically a very different kind of, I mean, America is a very different kind of experiment altogether. It's an enlightenment country, but this is where I was going, this notion of um, the, the the libertarian notion of freedom that a lot of Catholic writers have actually been been a little bit you know better at articulating, digesting, and showing that has kind of sometimes even a nihilistic root. Um, and I don't I, you know I I also know where it comes from in, in other strands of you know intellectual history. But there there is this sense in which a reformed world you know in particular in Protestant world you know as, as I understand it does wrestle between this libertarian disposition and then this formative cultivating virtue kind of you know created order and then kind of redemptive order vision and these things oftentimes conflict and and it's not always clear we we all as Christians where we fall in the line can get it wrong sometimes I'm okay with that I do. Um, but there is kind of a, you know, as an American, there is one side of me is just, you know what, you know what, I'm right. On the other hand, there is this notion that, no, they're always right. And then the, there is this kind of Protestant balancing between these two. And I think your, your, your chapter is trying to address that. Um, so maybe you could talk a little more of that, and then I'll, and then I'll shut up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. Um, I mean, my uh, this doesn't... I can't remember if I actually put any of this into the chapter or not, probably put some, some of it, but I mean, my dissertation was on Richard Hooker and how he parses these things and kind of um, how Richard Hooker basically tries to square the doctrine of Christian liberty with the need for political authority and, and holding those in balance. And a key part of it is um, an epistemic modesty. And this is, you know, very, you know, conservative, maybe kind of familiar with this idea from, um, Edmund Burke, who is influenced by Hooker, just uh, uh, realizing how little, um, how much more limited our understanding is than we often think it is, particularly when it comes to, um, you know, complex political and economic questions uh, where uh, we, each of us only sees a little piece of the puzzle. And so the, you know, what, you know, what Hooker says is, Absolutely, you should stand in defense of your liberty of conscience when you have a, um, you know, a clear biblical command or a demonstrative reason um, behind your action. Uh, but you need to actually, but you need to examine yourself carefully and say, do I actually have that, or do I just have a kind of probable judgment um, based on my own sort of limited perspective of this? And if I only have a probable judgment, um, then it's, it's the task of political authority to make those probable judgments on behalf of a community, and, 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 and we have to sort of submit, suspend our judgment and go along with that. Now, I think um, the, yeah, that's part of the answer. Part of the problem, of course, is that our political authority now operates at, at such a – so much higher and more detached of a level um, than it used to, and it's easy for us to feel alienated from it, right? Um, we don't – we do not see political authority as representative in any meaningful sense. We don't see them as acting for us. We don't – you know, that kind of language of, you know, the community making decisions on behalf of the community, that just doesn't – like that just rings totally hollow in a situation where so many decisions are being made by federal bureaucrats – you know, yeah, that we have no, we have no idea of the conversation, right? Yeah. And so I think, um, you know, a recovery of a robust subsidiarity, which is a, it's a principle you often hear articulated with Roman with Catholic social teaching, the idea of subsidiarity that uh, decisions ought to be taken at the lowest um, feasible 
sort of level of hierarchy that 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 can have responsibility for those. It's really much more a Protestant notion than it is a Catholic notion. I mean, <laughs> the Reformation was making that subsidiarity claim on church authority. Um, Pope and Rome shouldn't be calling these shots. Um, local or, or at most national churches should be calling these these shots. Uh, but it also works in the the civic realm, and uh, you know, a neglected but really important figure in late 16th, early 17th century political thought, Johannes Althusius spells this out a lot, uh, understanding the, the state as a community of communities. The building, the building blocks of, civil, of, of the state are not individuals, but uh, families, schools, uh, corporations, guilds, cities, uh, and, and, and the importance of um, having... So, so robust organs of uh, ex- of authority and and collective decision making at those lower levels, with yes, there, there's going to have to be um, you know a national government making certain decisions for the entire nation, but as much as possible, decisions should be left for lower down the chain at places where both for for two reasons. Um, I think one is the kind of epistemic reason that. An authority lower down the chain is perhaps is more likely to understand the on the ground circumstances. Um, so you know, like in in COVID, uh, does it, a, a small rural community is going to be able to sit to sort of say assess better what the risks are there than someone a, a federal bureaucrat who lives in a densely populated city. Uh, but also, it's it's not just epistemic; it's also. Um, People are much are more able to obey and more able to suspend their kind of individual uh, tendency to to just you know do my own thing if they feel again if they feel like the authority making the call um, is someone they actually know or at least can, can can identify with in some way right and so the lower down the chain the command is coming from it's both more likely to be accurate. And it's more likely to be perceived as reasonable, and I think that's why we have such a crisis of authority in modern American life. It's because we've we've lost sight of that principle. But I think the danger is the danger is we see we see authority is not operating the way it should. Political authority is not operating at the level it should, and our reaction is just to kind of be like you know, well, you know, down with authority, um, and that actually plays into. Um, I think when, when conservatives just kind of jump on the down with authority bandwagon, we actually play into what the left is doing, which is trying to tear down all authority structures, including those of the family and the church. Yeah, I think that's, those are some great insights, Brad. I, I'd like to see if you have any thoughts on just kind of the situation we find ourselves in with regard to, say, the administrator state. And are you familiar with uh, Christopher Caldwell's second constitution thesis and the idea that we have kind of two constitutions that are kind of fighting it sort of for supremacy. Um, I guess the thing, you know, that, that, uh, that I'm wrestling with is, is there really are some things that are kind of unique to the, to modernity, uh, and particularly with regard to, um, obviously technology and, uh, but also government. And how does say this, uh, tradition of, of uh, Protestant thought relate to those things. So, um, you know, with the progressive era, we have a whole different approach to, uh, you know, how we think about governing, you know, in the founding, we were, you know, um, extolling the, the sort of the importance of the competent citizen. Now we're in a situation where it's the competent bureaucrat or the competent administrator and the citizen is more or less assumed to be incompetent. Um, any thoughts on any of that? Yeah. I mean, um, it, it's, a, I'm, it's something I've been thinking about a lot lately and I'm, I'm torn in certain ways because I think the, we have to acknowledge that, um, there are technology brings about changes in which um, you know you, you can't just do the kind of nostalgic Wendell Berry thing and and or and and say you know why can't we all just be sort of like small self governing communities living close to the land and and so on um, we are we're profoundly interconnected through technology uh, that doesn't seem to be going anywhere 
you know, that's, that, that trend is only going to intensify. Uh, and we're part of these therefore complex networks of cause and effect whereby, you know, my actions in rural, you know, rural South Carolina can have consequences on, you know, somebody in urban California or, you know, or the other side of the world. Uh, and so because, because we're kind of caught up in these chains of cause and effect that are vast in scope, there is a need for some kind of regulative administrative oversight at a higher level than previously would have been the case. Um, you certainly, certainly, I don't think, I, I think there's a, a, there's a stupidity in the kind of uh, libertarian in, impulse uh, that wants to tear down the administrative state while leaving, you know, Amazon and Apple um, in place, right? If you if you're going to have massive global corporations, um, you can't you you can't have small local government, right? That what that means is that effectively the government will be the massive global corporations. So we have to have political institutions operating at a high enough level that can actually, um, in some way, oversee the economic and technological institutions that we have. Uh, so, and I, so I, I have a strong sort of localist impulse, but I also recognize that, and um, it's something I haven't really solved to my own satisfaction. But I think what I can say um, that at least where we could make some progress is is saying yes, we have a greater need for the expert, um, the kind of the, the the bureaucrat who who has this kind of high level of of expertise and data crunching um, than we used to. But we still need to understand the limitations of that. Um, the data crunching expert can only tell you about his own area of expertise, um, which is only a very small slice of human life. He can't tell you what the right political decision is to make in light of that. And he usually can't even tell you about his own area of expertise with anything like complete certainty. He can give you a probabilistic judgment. Real quick, on, on that note, I mean, I have someone who I met actually when I was in Washington State visiting Chris and one of the conferences who used to work for, um, I, I believe it was Facebook. Um, it was one of these big, big groups. And they used to come to him. They knew he was a Christian. And they used to tell them that they have absolute control over immense amounts of power over people and influence, but they have no ethical guidance whatsoever how to deal with it. And they were begging him right. to share with him how to ethically evaluate places that have no parameters and where no ethical voice has ever gone before. So, like I said, I, I understand them being there and placed there in, in some kind of providential way, but there is the, there is this place at which, which wisdom and, and insight is is something desperately wanting and is is it's, it's kind of a, it's kind of a new thing I, I don't fully know how to to yeah, I'm, I'm writing on some of this stuff but i don't fully know how to prognosticate on it you know um, yeah but that, yeah, that very territory is is not it's not something hence the reformers or the catholics have been into before i don't think anyone in humanity has been yeah but, yeah, there's, there's another dimension to this as well, and that's that what we're seeing increasingly is a uh, emerging, uh, not officially but in practice, of the bureaucratic and the technocratic uh, elites. Um, so you've got government bureaucracy working hand in glove with, uh, with high tech. Um, we, this has been coming out pretty clearly lately that they're working to suppress speech that they don't want using high-tech platforms because they're uh, following the same ideological framework. Um, and I think the core of that ideological framework is one that we mentioned earlier, and that's that the experts should rule the, the rest of us. Um, you know, w when you're dealing with, with uh, you know, a, a social, for example, socialism is based on the idea that the government should be controlling the economy. In other words, experts do. You know, you've got the bureaucracy, the bureaucrats know best. The people who are technocrats are thinking, well, we know best. And there, so there's a commonality of interest that develops there, which creates the problem, uh, who watches the watchman? 
you know, who, who oversee, you know, we want a government big enough to oversee the big tech companies, but what happens when the government and the big tech companies are colluding? We don't really have a solution on that one. Well, and it's yep. even more, it's even more, I guess, uh, challenging than that. I think Glenn, I've been doing some work here recently on kind of, uh, networks, uh, and how they, uh, self-organize and how things are kind of at a, at a, at a, at a point where states are dealing with uh, whether or not they're able to uh, govern anymore um, at all, uh, just because of the, the global character of networks and how instantly they form. Uh, it's almost like we're, we're looking at something more like what we saw in Philippi in Acts chapter 16, where essentially the authorities are just trying to appease what they think of as kind of the most dangerous threat at the moment. And um, too bad for Paul and Silas, they get stoned <laughs> or they get beaten, you know, that kind of thing. So it's, 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 a, I, I've just uh, becoming, I'm, I'm just early on in this sort of, uh, sort of journey I'm on trying to understand what I think of as almost kind of ad hoc totalitarianism that it just yeah, kind I of forms quickly. Yeah, Oz Guinness yesterday, um, I heard him speaking up in Holland, Michigan. Uh, Oz was talking about how revolutionary nationalism has morphed into revolutionary globalism. Yeah, there are so many things going on right now that I think uh, are beyond sort of the competence of our progressive uh, bureaucrats. I mean, they... I think that they're uh, as lost as we are. <laughs> uh, you know, they've got these narrow spheres of, uh, or sort of narrow segments of expertise, but everything, as Brad brought out, is interconnected. Everything is feeding into everything else. There's just stuff going on that no one understands. Not even the, not even the, the people, uh, you know, at the tech giants uh, understand what's going on. Yeah, a, a book on this I'd really recommend is uh, The Revolt of the Public by uh, Martin Gurry. So it's been very formative for my thinking. But one of the most obvious features when you when you start looking at the older record is how everyone assumed that there was going to be something religious, something doctrinal um, that was relevant to to politics and to society. And in America, I don't think that was originally the intent to totally get rid of that. I think when you read writers from the revolutionary era, they were little more balanced on that. But but certainly over time, we've got that idea that, oh, those two things are totally separated. You know, if it's religious, then it just has to stay private. And I think what we're seeing is that that's not workable. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, everyone throughout all of human history has understood that religious ideas intersect with social and moral ideas. And it's only been very recently that we've tried to separate those two. And it's not working. <laughs> um, and we're going to have to find some way to, to be able to bring back religious ideas in, an, in a public fashion without apology uh, and even to demonstrate that that can be consistent with an American social order. But Stephen, that, that, that's a very tricky thing. And, and you're right. I agree with you completely. <laughs> I completely agree. The, the trickiness lies on that metaphysical level because there is, we, we're dealing with post-metaphysical times, a place in which um, reason discourse is completely underwritten by the kind of notion that any kind of claims to truth and reality are basically those that are rhetorical ploys to you know underwrite your privilege, right? Um, so that any anything the Christian Church says is nothing more than another imposition of its it, it, you know, meta narrative onto reality to basically um, preserve a certain kind of status quo that that privileges you know us as it's been you know the ones who get get the goods out of the deal. Um, and, and so, though you're right, um, and, and I do think we do need to address that, and I think us Protestants are a little slow on that. We, we do have figures that are doing it. We're a little slow on that. But I, but I think it is this, this wider reality, the w wider reality vision of Christianity that is God and all things relative to God, that it's the all things relative to God illumined by the God that is determinative of all those things that, that kind of is, is the solution. Um, but rhetorically, it's very difficult. Um, logically, like we said, 
you know, we can talk logical coherence and that being is intelligible and the intelligibility of being, but in a world in which all intelligibility and being claims, reality claims, are oppressive, um, we are definitely placed in, in a radically uh, complicated situation, right? Um, so for, for all our retrieval work, um, it goes on deaf ears in the wider culture, even though we may get a hearing amongst some mm-hmm. sympathetic internal, you know, people. So, I mean, it's that, maybe it's that dimension that how do we get the riches that you both are talking about into a world that has already shut the door because we're imposing a meta narrative on things rather than, you know, first suffering something and then kind of sharing it. Yeah. I mean, I think it is critical uh, the, I mean, the, the church has only ever succeeded where the church has demonstrated that it is there um, like its savior to suffer for and serve the world. Uh, I mean, the church spread in Roman society be, be, because despite all the prejudice that Roman elites had against it, um, the Christians were the one taking in the exposed infants, um, caring for the slaves, caring for the sick, etc. In the Reformation, uh, was you know we think of it as just a reformation of doctrine, but there was a huge effort um, to use these um, you know these newly reformed uh, polities to care for the care for the needy um, and uh, create institutions that are that were taking care of religious refugees and so on. So I think it I, 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 what I, I think this is important for us to keep in mind in our context where. Um, there's a there's a temptation to again kind of play off social gospel um, against that the left that sort of more liberal Christians still own against orthodoxy where there are Christians saying we shouldn't be um, kind of obnoxiously standing up for Christian values in the public square. We should be focused on caring for refugees and caring for women and caring for minorities and, 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 and listening and lamenting and all these kind of, all these kind of buzzwords. Um, and our temptation is just kind of uh, to see compassion as a bad thing um, uh, because compassion has been so abused in our society. But I think we have to find a way to model a, confidence, a confident proclamation of Christian truth to the world with a humble service and sacrifice on behalf of the world so that the world can't plausibly accuse us of just trying to fortify our own power and privilege because we demonstrate by our actions that that's not what we're we're interested in. So this is a good point to kind of, as I say very often on this show, (laughs) bring this in for a landing. Um, we want to make sure that folks know uh, where they can get the book. Obviously, there's Amazon, but maybe that's not the place you direct people. <laughs> and then also uh, some other things you might want to make sure we know about Davenant and about this particular book before we wrap it up. Uh, well, you know, despite our hating on the uh, big tech, you know, we do we do direct people to Amazon as the best place to get this. Um, and we have a Kindle version out now as well. Um, we're going to have during the Christmas season, we have, um, we run some kind of package deals through our own websites, bookstore. Um, so just, you can check out davininstitute.org for that. So you might, if you're interested in getting this book together with a couple of other related books at at a discount, you can do it there. Otherwise, uh, shop on Amazon. Uh, and, um, yeah, and on our website, you'll see, I think we have three dozen titles that we currently publish. Um, and we've got the O'Donovan Begotten or Made, which is really, you know, key work of Protest- of current Protestant social teaching that's coming out in uh, in December. So be on the lookout for that. We also run uh, courses uh, through our online, our online graduate program, Davenant Hall, and our residential programs here at Davenant House. So again, you can find there's a there's several websites for each of those, davenanthall.com, davenanthouse.org. Uh, but you can find links to everything just through davenantinstitute.org. And uh, hope you'll check out our resources and get on our mailing list. And you guys got to have a journal. Add Fon- I, I guess the right, journal. Right. Also, right, Ad Fonte's Journal, uh, <laughs> yes. which is adfontesjournal.com, I think. So.
Yeah, we'll put all those in the show notes so that people who are listening to the to this episode can just go to those and click on the links there. Anything anything you want to say, Stephen, as we wrap up? I uh, hope people enjoy the book. It's been really uh, a privilege to work on it. Uh, seeing the finished product is exciting, and all the chapters are just really, really strong chapters. I was impressed with the one on just war, the one on economics, uh, the one on uh, the introductory on law. I mean, there's so many standout ones. You can't say, you can't talk about each of them here, but I really was very happy with the book, and I hope people enjoy it. Well, I, I know some of the authors who, who contributed, and I agree. There's some great folks that have been involved. I want to echo something that was said right at the beginning of the show. I was real impressed with how readable it is. For a book that could have been academic and ponderous, um, it reads very, very well. So uh, congratulations to the authors or editors or whoever is responsible for that. I was really happy with how yeah. fluidly it read. Yeah. Great. Yeah, I plan, I plan on using it in my ethics. I, I teach a social ethics class at Gordon Conwell, which has always suffered for a book. And so you, you have finally uh, delivered. So I have a lot of a kinship with you guys. I really appreciate uh, all that you're up to. Well, great stuff. And uh, we're grateful to the folks who listened all the way to the end of this episode. Thanks for listening to the Theology Podcast. Uh, if you're interested in supporting the work we do, of course, you can go to our Patreon page and become a patron. And then there are other ways that people give to us on a regular basis through the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network and uh, our own website and so forth. But uh, thanks a lot again uh, for, for your interest in this show and this episode. And uh, we'll wrap it up there. Bye-bye. Bye now.